Hi, everyone. Quick plug before we get started. As many of you probably already know who listen to this podcast, we've launched an app. It's called Vivio. It tracks your sleep, nutrition, exercise, and mindset and gives you individualized recommendations on a daily basis on how to get healthier, to improve your well-being, and to perform to your potentials. If you want to check it out, visit vivio.com, V-I-I-V-I-O.com. Thanks so much. Let's dive into this episode. Welcome back. Great to be with you and super excited to share with you another episode of the podcast where every week we do our best to deconstruct excellence and bring you tips, tools, tactics, strategies, and ideas that enable you to improve your well-being, get healthy, and to perform to your potential. And therefore, we are talking to yet another Olympic champion this week, Kyle Schufelt. Kyle began his gymnastics career at the age of six when his mother, Nola, got tired of him cartwheeling around the house. She and his father, Wes, registered him for gymnastics lessons at their local club as an outlet for his energy. Kyle's passion for the sport quickly ignited and he soon realized it would be a lifelong pursuit. He is a three-time Olympian in 2000, 2004, and 2008 and a multiple world championships, Commonwealth Games, and World Cup medalist. His stirring performance at the 2004 Athens Olympics earned him a gold medal in the floor exercise. It motivated thousands of participants to flip into gyms around the country and the world. Kyle's also known for the courage that he showed in the face of adversity. After breaking his legs on a bad landing in August of 2007, he embarked on the biggest challenge of his career and had just 11 months to recover in time for the 2008 Beijing Games. He qualified and his comeback inspired many young gymnasts as his golden performance had four years earlier. While proud of his accomplishments, Kyle now says his focus is in involving and engaging others. To quote, my goal with Kyle Schufelt Gymnastics is to create a positive community space where as many people as possible can experience the magic of gymnastics. It's an activity that has benefits for all ages and ability levels. I strongly believe that it's a key ingredient to living a healthy, happy, active, and satisfied life. The sport has given me so much and I'm excited about giving back and quote, both my kids play in a gymnastics studio back in Toronto and love it. So I totally get what Kyle was talking about in that quote. After retiring from competition in 2009, Kyle is still heavily involved in the sport and the community. He's been an expert analyst at the Olympics uh, in television coverage of gymnastics, and he's an ambassador and mentor for Gymnastics Canada, and he works closely with a number of charity organizations, including Kids Sport, Special Olympics, and Right to Play. In addition, he sits on the board of directors for the Canadian Centre for Ethics in Sport and was inducted into Canada's Sports Hall of Fame in 2010. He's a highly sought after speaker. He actually covered for me once when I couldn't make it to an event and share, he shares his motivational messages to tens of thousands of people around the world. In his spare time, Kyle enjoys doing handstands, backflips and trainings for triathlons and marathons. He loves spending time with his family and friends, especially his partner, Kristen and his super awesome dog, Cooper. And Cooper also goes to the gym and does gymnastics apparently. Above all else, Kyle is a perpetual optimist who enjoys helping others to reach their potential and he believes in the power of a high five as, and is excited to connect everybody to the foundation of the sport that he loves so much. And that is what we talk about today. 
his learnings from being involved in the sport, the future vision that we all share for space uh, safe sport as a space where people can go and participate in sport in an inclusive and, and totally safe manner. And obviously the sport of gymnastics and swimming, my sport have been seriously challenged around that over the last few years. So we need to make progress and Kyle and I talk a lot about that and just about learnings and ideas that we can all apply to improve all of our lives on an everyday basis. So super excited to share this conversation. Please enjoy my chat with my friend and sports leader and Olympic champion, Kyle Schufelt. Hey, Kyle, good to speak to you. Thanks for, for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we were uh, just before we clicked record talking about, you know, like our learnings during this last 14 very, very, very strange months. And I just finished reading your book literally over the last couple of days. So obviously you've been busy, but how's it been? Like what's going on? How have you experienced, what's this pandemic been like for you? Well, I think like for everyone, it's been, it's been a roller coaster. I've certainly felt my highest of highs and low of lows and really challenging as a business owner to have to just figure out how to get your business to survive through the closures and not having any control. And I think that's the big thing that I've learned is that you have no control. And so you have to find that place of happy and also perspective. is It's a choice. And, you know, for a while I went to that really angry negative place where it's just like protection defense mode. And then I would sit at the dinner table and I'd be looking at my young daughter and I would be putting tweets to, you know, Jason Kenny in my head. <laughs> and I'm like, right. this is not healthy. This is not healthy. So I kind of made this conscious choice. It is what it is. And I've, I've got to, I've got to trust in the universe that it's all going to work out. Isn't that interesting? Like, so just for con just so everyone knows, like you own a gymnastics training facility and obviously that got shut down and it's a relatively new business that, you know, uh, as far as I understand it. So like the world basically just like, and it's just like me, my public speaking sort of disappeared and a bunch of other Judith, my wife was a chiropractor and she wasn't allowed to work. So, I mean, that first stage where you're, you're basically going through the stages of grief almost. Right. And then it's so easy to lash out and blame and get angry. And then you, you, you sort of wake up to, wow, it looks like my daughter's handling this. Okay. And she's two. So perhaps there's a different <laughs> way of doing things anyway. So I guess that's sort of what just so everyone understands. I think the, you know, the context of what you were saying there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I opened my gymnastics center in 2013. So, you know, we are established, but as soon as you don't have revenue coming in and you, you see your bills are still coming, you know, you still owe your landlord the rent, you still owe your utility companies and your insurance companies and everybody, you start to hit that panic button and yeah. there is chaos and you don't know what's happening. And so I actually have found Greg, like I've had, I think there's a bit of trauma around it like i'm having some of those trigger responses when the word like pivot comes up i truly i like ugh, my body freezes up and i i notice it i'm like whoa wow <laughs> that's on? interesting yeah uh, we're all gonna have some ptsd out of this whole situation like there's no question it's been pretty traumatic for almost everybody in some way shape or form right whether that's not being with your loved ones or you know having to deal with a completely different landscape in business in like three weeks, or even just like you can imagine walking into a crowded restaurant in September, like that's going to be weird. It's going to feel strange. I think it's going to feel strange for me. It was a fight or flight 
Like I went to this crazy high adrenaline place yeah. and I was trying, my natural instinct is to try to lead. And so I was enrolling all of the different people that I could in the same industry and just trying to align. And so we would all do the same thing. And it was just constantly on the phone, not knowing what's going to happen, trying to make plans. Then they would change. And my adrenaline was just kicking in so high and I, I stopped sleeping and I would lay at night and like watch Netflix before the morning. Cause my brain literally couldn't turn off wow. and I could only handle that for a certain period of time. And then it just, I just crashed. Now, when you crashed, what did that feel like and how'd you pull yourself out of it? Cause that doesn't, it's not too different from what you went through as an athlete too. Right. Mm -hmm. And after the Olympics and all that sort of stuff. So it's interesting. We, we keep going through this in our lives. So I'm curious how you pulled yourself out. And if you learned anything from your, if your past experiences helped you to pull it out this time. I think that for me, when I crash, it's, it's this place where I've, I've always been able to put my head down and just keep trudging forward. You know, it's just push through the wall until the wall breaks down. And the way that I manage these situations is I enroll help. <laughs> I reached out to my psychologist and my sports psychologist. And it was doing weekly meetings and picking things that were perspective shifters and things that I could control. You know, it, and, and he reminded me like of my patterns. Okay, you are here and you've been here before. As an athlete, you were in this place. You tried to force it. You tried to force it. What you need to do right now is take that time away. Give yourself that permission. When you go into that place of wanting to solve and wanting to fight, you have to just let yourself, imagine yourself kind of like melting through it. <laughs> That's kind of the way that we work through it. And so I would come up to it and then try to take those deep breaths and try to have a little space for myself where I could kind of melt into it and realize that those emotions weren't going to be a permanent thing. That's my fear always with that down place is that I'm going to be stuck there forever. And I think looking back on my life now through sport and through business ownership and through a pandemic, it is an ebb and a flow. And there's going to be highs and there's going to be lows, but they're not going to be permanent. The idea of non-permanence is really interesting, right? Like, and when we're in these moments where you're super stressed or you're panicked or you're anxious or you know, you're nervous, you do in that moment feel like this is just going to last forever unless I do something. And that's, you know, that uh, I, I sense that as well. Like I want to, con I'm the same. I want to control everything. And I realize I can't now. So yeah, that idea of non-permanence and melting through things is really fascinating. I never heard it phrased like that before, especially the not is melting through it. So I'd love, you know, if there's anything else that, or just like, would love to explore that a little bit, just because it's a fascinating approach that is so critical and definitely a game changer in that moment when you are in not a good place. And I think it's a lot of self-awareness, you know, that's, and, and being able to like get in tune with my body. That's always my mind. I think a lot of people's minds go really fast and go into solve mode and think about all the the big picture problems. It's like, wow, there's a lot coming at me right now. And this is fast. And in those moments, I think I've learned that you have to take that deep breath and actually get out of your head and get into your body. So it's getting out of the house, changing our geography, putting your dog on the leash and taking them for a walk and trying to really notice what's happening. Like, where am I feeling this right now? It's visceral. It's, it's my body gets stiff and tight. My jaw gets tight. I feel my chest gets very heavy 
and my body just doesn't feel like it's flowing. And so I have to almost breathe in. <laughs> I kind of use the word sunshine. You know, I have to breathe in the sunshine through through my veins and just it allows my body to to just relax and then I can actually come to that better place. But that's to me what that melting kind of thing is, is recognizing and noticing what reactions my body's having in that moment and then trying to breathe through that and relax everything. I love that. So you're basically getting out of your head into your body, increasing the awareness of what's going on in your body and then breathe. I love the term breathe in the sunshine to relax, which lets it all go. I love that term too. Because <laughs> <laughs> you made it up. Talk to me about giving yourself space. Space. You, you mentioned also gi- giving yourself permission to give yourself space. I'm curious about that as well, because you know we do push fairly hard. Anyone listening to this show is probably a high performer and interested in optimization and all those sorts of things. So the idea of giving yourself space to do or not do is also an interesting one. I'd love to get your thoughts on. Yeah. There's a lot of people that need a lot of things, especially when you're in a leadership position. You know, my, when this was all going down at my business, I I had a team of 40 staff. I had thousands of kids that were attending and everyone wanted the answers. And then I had my own family to take care of. You know, I have a daughter, she's five years old and she was four at the time and everyone just needed the answers and I didn't have any answers. And so I had to, I couldn't, I couldn't be accountable to them. You know, I, I just had to say, I don't know right now. And I had to take myself out of it because when everyone else needs everything from you, you can't be in tune with yourself. It's, it's too much of an external force. Like it's all pushing you in all these different directions. And so for me to get grounded and to actually be able to give to those people and to be able to come up with the answers, I actually have to go and take space for myself. One of the places, Greg, that I've found to be the best for that, especially during pandemic, when you are like in your house working and your kids doing school and all the things, I go into my car and I lock the doors <laughs> and I will drive to a parking lot if I have to. So I can just sit. I can just sit and be with me and have nothing else coming in. I feel that things start to layer. And when it's hard, it gets even harder because everything feels like it's pulling so much more weight on you. It feels like this anchor just keeps getting heavier and heavier. So to create that space where I have a bubble around me and I can get centered, that's when I can be my best for the people around me. So that's what I mean when I say give myself space. I have to just cut it all out. I don't even bring my phone in the car. I don't want a text message coming through someone else needing something from me. Mm. So it's really wild that in order to better serve others, you almost have to radically protect yourself. And by giving everything to the people around us, it actually makes it almost impossible, especially in moments of crisis, to help the people around us who rely upon us, whether that's your immediate friends, your family, your coworkers, or if you're a business owner, your employees and your clients. So it's almost like you need to be give yourself permission to be selfish in order for you to be able to serve others. And I think that's probably a contradiction in most people's minds. Even when you say it, I'm like, no, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And I think everyone has a different coping mechanism and everyone needs a different level of that. I think the more aware we become of our needs and our patterns, I know where my elevator's going up to floor 10. Like I can feel that 
happening inside of my mind and my body. And what my goal in life as a, as a parent, as a business owner, is that I can recognize when that's happening and I can remove myself from the situation so that I can bring myself back to a place where I'm thinking more clearly. For me, that's, you know, in that zero to one. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting because there are so many people around us that need so many things. But if we aren't taking care of ourselves, both physically and mentally, I don't think we can truly give the best of ourselves. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that one. And I think one of the ways that it might make it possible for people to make that shift to giving yourself permission to take care of yourself so that you can then do what you do at the best possible level so you can better serve others and bring your gifts to the world would be to change your perspective in moments of crisis, right? And you mentioned very early on about perspective shifters. I'd love for you to expand upon that because that's also an interesting turn of words. And I'm, I'm curious about how you do that as well because shifting your perspective in a moment when things are, are tough in order to get that better perspective, that longer-term perspective, shift from you know, defense to offense, if you will, in life, like that's, that's really hard to do. It's very hard to do. And I'm not going to say that I do it all the time. You know, I have had some definitely like moments where I'm not proud of the way I've reacted. I recall one time on our third closure, I like collapsed on the floor in my kitchen and I was having a temper tantrum and pounding the floor <laughs> with my hand as a 39 year old man. And my, my five year old was like, what's wrong with daddy? <laughs> 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 and mommy and Kristen, my partner, was like, Daddy's having a really hard time right now. Daddy's and having a moment. <laughs> yeah. And he doesn't know how to control his body. And he's just <laughs> having a reaction. So I became a you know, a five year old again. But I think the more I, I try in those moments to not be too harsh on myself and not try to feel guilty about it. And I try to like I try to catch myself as quick as I can. And that's the best that I can do. And then I think one of my strengths is that I, I do reflect on it. And the next time it comes up, I'm a lot more aware. This is med like a meditation. You never become good at meditation. You just you know get better at recognizing the fact that your brain goes a million miles a minute. <laughs> and so the same comes for me with perspective. It's I don't always catch myself, but I'm getting better at it each time. When I'm feeling it's coming up, I realized I don't want to be that guy laying on the kitchen floor, banging on the floor, feeling helpless. So I'm like, okay, it's coming. I'm feeling this in my body. It's here. I, I feel it. It's here. And I try to verbalize it. And I try to say to my family and the people around me, like, I'm right now, I feel like my elevator's going up. I'm feeling like I'm starting to see red. I'm going to remove myself from the situation. And I just do it. <laughs> and it's a practice. It's a constant practice and a constant recognition and I think I'm going to continually in my life be aiming to like be able to catch myself quicker and quicker in those moments. It's interesting. One of the things that meditation, I think, has enabled me to do through the last couple of years is have the perspective shift from being in my thoughts to observing my thoughts. And I've really noticed over the last probably even 16 months that I am now able to notice when my elevator is going up and be able to pause long enough to say, huh, isn't that interesting? My elevator's going up, so to speak. And I wonder why that is. And so I remember, even a couple of weeks ago, Judith was talking, my wife was talking about 
uh, renovations or something like that. And I was getting really tense and just not, I was like, ah, um, and I was like, pause. I'm like, I wonder why I'm feeling really, really agitated right now talking about renovations, which hypothetically make our house better. So just like that space and time and perspective enabled us to be, and I, I did exactly what you said. I was like, I taught, I told you this. I'm like, I'm feeling really 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 tense right now so we need to just talk about that before we talk about the kitchen so <laughs> that's it. it's interesting how that that plays out it's not easy and it's not fun um but that perspective shift is definitely a practice i think it is a practice and it's a muscle and the more you flex it i think the more aware you are do you meditate like what's your meditation practice look like i i always feel better after i meditate and after I do a great yoga practice, I never leave the mat saying, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That was a yeah. waste of time. I'm always like, oh, God, I need to do that more. Yeah. Life ebbs and flows. And I go through periods in time where I'm very committed to my meditation practice. And it's the first thing I do in the morning. And I just set myself up. And then there's other times where I'll go for months. And I'm like, wow, why didn't I do that? Like, why am I not meditating? And then I start to... For me, it's a it's an ebb and a flow. And I just accept that I always... I always come to meditation and journaling when I need it the most. I read through my, my old journals once in a while, and I realize that I don't often write in them when things are going great. I often write in them when I'm feeling a challenge and a struggle that I need to extract my thoughts and be able to get some reflection and perspective. So I think for me, meditation comes when I am in a period of I need to nourish that and nurture myself. I don't think I meditate as much when when life is feeling like it's in that nice, that nice flow. That's super interesting. When I was reading your book over the last couple of days, uh, one of the things that caught me right at the beginning was that you've had these ideas for a long time. You've been writing this book for, you know, 10 plus years in, in snippets, but it all came together now when you figured out the theme and like that central theme. So I would love for you just to walk us through the process of like, what have you gathered what are the key reflections and what's the theme that emerged for you and how did you get to that central theme that enabled you to bring this thing across the finish line when i started writing the book i i i knew all the stories but i didn't know how to tell them if that makes sense like i didn't know what the beginning the middle and the end of the story was i knew i knew the moments that were the most important to me i always wrote in that journal and Mark Tewksbury, a uh, great Canadian swimmer, he, I was talking to him about books and he said, yeah, you probably have a lot of old journals that you want to extract from, right? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, all the best stuff's going to bubble up. You're never going to look at those journals. And I never did. All the best stuff just bubbled up. Wow. Yeah. For me, it was just the process of just writing. So I wrote all the stories. And then as gymnastics has kind of gone, it's going through a real big cultural shift right now. You have a lot of prominent stories in the media about the culture, especially in USA gymnastics, that led to the, um, you know, the situation, the circumstance where Larry Nassar was able to abuse hundreds of young women. And the sexual abuse that happened in that circumstance, like Larry Nassar was a very ill man. However, there was a culture around the sport that was created that allowed it to happen. You know, yeah. it was a culture of fear, control, power, obedience. And these young women were being abused, yet they felt that they, they felt internally the instinct that it was wrong, but they didn't feel like they could tell anyone mm -hmm. because they didn't feel like they would be believed. 
And also they didn't feel like anyone would care and it would single them out. And then their chances to make these teams were going to be, they would be not as strong. And so following really closely with this and becoming a parent and being a coach and a business owner in the gymnastics realm, I'm like, okay, so these athletes have reached this highest pinnacle of success. And in the media, we've like really we've glorified it. We've glamorized this, how strong they were, how strong minded they were, how there were so many women that could make the team. And these are the ones that made it and they were the survivors and that kind of thing. And, and, and we, it was seen as a good thing because that's what we were kind of fed. And then all of it got flipped on its head where these young women are like, I was abused and I do not, I'm not proud of my career. I hated it. I hated every second of it. And I just did it because I felt like I had to. And, you know, it, to me, it felt so wrong. And then the key central theme that kind of came forward for me was I had a very positive experience in sports. My coach, he protected me. My coach nurtured me. It was a partnership. He allowed me to fail. I felt I could completely be myself. And in fact, heading into the Olympics in Athens, my coach told me that he was more proud of me of who I was becoming as a person than who I was as an athlete. And like what I felt was how can I contribute to this conversation? I want to stand beside these survivors and I want to advocate for them and fight for them and fight for strong policies and a safe sport system. But also there's a way that you can reach the top in a positive way. And I think that's a valuable resource and a tool. And so that's where the book started coming together. It was like, these are the things that happened and other coaches and parents and athletes need to read this to know the right path. We can't just send someone into a grocery store with a list of things not to get. <laughs> don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. We have to send them into the grocery store with a list of ingredients to make it a happy, healthy experience. So I feel like that's where my book comes into this conversation. Yeah, I really feel like that's probably one of the most important themes. And it, it's not just gymnastics. I mean, we just look at the number of coaches that have been caught in swimming, which is my sport uh, for abusing the children under their care. and you know, ha having had friends who came up through the system and who were abused and seeing the lifelong effects that that has had uh, for, for them. We need to protect the survivors and also, as you say, craft this, you know, reach for the top in a positive way and craft the right path where it is possible to reach the pinnacle of human potential in a safe, healthy way. And if we went back and said what we just said 15 years ago in sport, we would have been, you know, the eyes would have been rolling. Whereas now I, we cannot separate human potential from human health and mental, phys physical, emotional, spiritual health all wrap up in one. And I'm curious to know from your perspective about what is the right path. I have friends with teenagers who are in high performance sports and in swimming and track and field and gymnastics. And I'm sure they'd love to know, like, what is that right path? What's the balance between pushing to achieve and and maintaining that mental health and, and perspective and, and a, a healthy overall life? Would love your your perspective on that. I think the journey, first and foremost, needs to be athlete driven. Hmm. It needs to be athlete driven and parent coach supported. The best athletes who have always risen to the top are the ones that want it for themselves. And then you have the parents and the coaches who are there as supporters. And it doesn't have to be, you know, sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows every day. It can be tough. It can be intense. Athletes can be held accountable to reaching their potential. It can be demanding. But the problem with sport is that 
so often it's become demeaning. It's become a fear-based approach. And like both work, they do. I mean, you, you see athletes who have been put in those positions who have reached the pinnacle of sport. However, after sport, what is their life like? You know, if, if someone won an Olympic medal, but they're not proud of standing on the podium because they felt like they were berated and that they were humiliated and that they weren't respected in their career, but they had this talent and they were able to make it like, that's not a win to me. That's a failure. That's an absolute failure, not on behalf of the athletes, but on behalf of the adults who are in charge of that athlete's journey. I strongly feel that those who want to be great, we need to like build them up. We need to nurture them. And the culture and the environment needs to be one of dignity. It needs to be one of respect. And it needs to be one of kindness. And if you have those three things, dignity, respect, and kindness, you can still be tough. You can still push the athlete. You can still ask them for more. But you can do it from a place of, I know you are capable of this. I believe in you. You are so talented and gifted. Don't let yourself down. Instead of, you're stupid. You're not trying hard enough. You're letting me down and you're letting everybody else down around you. There's mm-hmm. language that we can use around. Greg, I've seen so much in the sport world, in, in gymnastics. And, you know, the sexual abuse stuff is, is prevalent, but it's not. It's the mental, it's the verbal, it's the emotional and physical abuse that is the problem. And I think so many of us just kind of accepted that that's the way it is. You know, I can clearly remember a distinct moment, a young woman standing on the balance beam scared, so petrified of doing her series backwards, the back handspring to two layouts. And she was standing there and her hands were sweaty and she kept moving her hands on her legs to get the sweat off. And she put her hands above her head and then she'd rub them together. And she was like shaking. And the coach yelled at her, you're not getting off that beam until you get it done. And you can't get out of here today until you have it done. And I'm like, we just accepted that's the way. Tough coaching. Mm -hmm. No, in that moment, that coach should have taken that child off the beam and they should have said, I understand that you're feeling afraid and I want you to know I believe in your potential. Let's go take a step back. I'm going to spot you on 10 on the low beam and we're going to come back to it tomorrow. Why didn't that happen in that moment? I want to know and I want to ensure that in the future, that's the reaction that happens in those moments. Imagine, <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, I, as you're speaking, I, I can think back to so many statements made by coaches around me that sounded exactly like what you just said. And at the same time, I also remember coaches who were so relentlessly positive that it also became annoying. But I now, like in in hindsight, realize like what they were you know, what they were doing in the different approaches. I also think that parents play a key role too. And I love the story in your book of your mom realizing that there was a a disconnect between you and your coach when you were a teenager and dragging you into the office with the coach and being like, you two have a problem. I don't want to hear about this anymore. You want control. You want control. You two need to sort this out and not bring this home anymore. And then you might be able to work together. Like, I loved that story. Can you tell us about that? Because I think it's a great example of like a parent doing the right thing, being supportive, but also you know, throwing responsibility where it needs to be and forcing people to get along and do things in a positive way. Love to hear about that. So Kelly Manjack was my coach and he, when I was a child, you know, I was, he had full control and he had 99% control. I showed up, he told me what to do and told our group what to do. And we just did it. And then, you know, I turned 13 years old and puberty starts and I decide that 
I don't want to be the perfect little gymnast boy anymore. And I'm fighting for independence and I don't want to be told what to do. And it was that muddy period of trying to figure out what life looks like when you are a mature adult. And during that period of time, Kelly and I didn't always see eye to eye. And I strongly feel he always had my best interests at heart. I was a little turd who didn't want to listen to him. And so it was mainly me. You know, he was just trying to get me to work hard and he was trying to motivate me. And I didn't want to hear anything he said. If he told me to do anything, I would roll my eyes and I wouldn't want to do it. We had a long standing relationship in that, that way, but I was fighting for independence and I was fighting for that control. And so my mom decided that it was enough was enough and that I decided I wanted to quit. And I told my mom, I said, I want to quit. And she's like, oh yeah, you want to go smoke cigarettes with your friends at 7-Eleven? Okay, go have fun. Like quit, fine. So I did that for like three days. And then I realized that's not what I actually wanted in my life. That wasn't as fun <laughs> as I thought it was. And so I decided to come back to the gym after a week of being, you know, after quitting for a big old week. And she sat us down and she just, she wanted us to meet and to have that conversation. And Kelly decided to give me full control because that's what I wanted. And I actually, I didn't know how to use it. You know, I didn't know how to actually manage that. And so they let me fail. My mom and my coach set me up to fail because they knew that's the way that I was going to learn. And I totally had a disastrous competition three months later. And that's when Kelly lined us up as a young group. And he said, okay, are you guys ready to work together? Do you understand the important role I play? And you have played an important role too. And it became a collaboration. Kelly likes to say that at the Olympics in Athens, we had worked together for 16 years. He, he says that I was 95% in control. His job, he was my manager. You know, all he had to do was tell me how great I looked and to keep me calm because I was a really high adrenaline athlete. And so he had to just keep me calm. He just had to manage me. I knew exactly what I wanted. It's interesting that you say that he became your manager. I remember several times as a physiologist and people say, what do you do at the Olympics? I was like, I basically just take people's blood and tell them how great they are at that point. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the extent of my work as you get closer and closer and closer to the games. Like obviously when you're in training mm -hmm. three years out, I'm super busy, but at the games themselves, you're just like, you've done everything you need to do. Blood work looks per perfect. You look fantastic. Yeah. You've got all the skills you need. Everything's awesome. The weather's great. Like just, you know, just have a great day. And they're like, really? That's what you do? That's your job? And like, Well, actually that's, yeah, that's exactly it. You just keep, you just make people feel like they're in a great place. And the pressure is so high in those moments. You know, if I put it into perspective for listeners, I trained for 16 years of my life, nearly 20 to 30 hours a week for 16 years for one moment, for one routine that lasted 70 seconds. The pressure was so intense. And so I felt that. I felt the weight of that on my shoulders. And so, like you said, Kelly was my manager. And his job was to just try to build me up, try to, try to take some of that pressure off. Because he knew that over the years that we worked together, he knew that when I was at my best was when the pressure was off, when I could relax and just go into a flow of the routine. So that he recognized that was what I needed individually as an athlete. It was such a wonderful partnership. Isn't it interesting though that he also let you fail? I've been really interested in failure recently. And it's in it's interesting that he let you go through the process of taking more control and then failing. Because a lot of people won't let that happen. A lot of people are afraid to let that happen. A lot of people are afraid to let their kids fail. I think that our entire school system is built now 
works that kids cannot fail, which I think is just an enormous disservice to them. So I've become very, very interested in failure and making sure, though, that if you do fail, you learn from that failure and that you move forwards. Because if you repeatedly fail at the same thing, then obviously that's a huge problem. But if you fail and actually learn, that's a completely different thing. So I'm also curious about what your thoughts are on that, given that clearly that's a tact, not even a tactic. You may not even have done it consciously, but he let you do it, which is interesting. My mom and dad and Kelly, we were a trifecta. You know, it was the parent, coach, athlete kind of team. And they had to let me fail in order for me to like feel it, feel that pain. Like you can't tell someone that it's going to hurt <laughs> until they feel it inside of themselves. And then you realize, I don't want to feel this anymore. And I've, I'm the one that actually made this happen. I had to have that moment. I'm sure it was very hard for them to sit back and watch because the destruction was not, it didn't just happen. It was, <laughs> it was over a period of time that I wasn't doing the conditioning I should have been doing. I wasn't doing the numbers in the gym I should have been doing. If I had Kelly's support at that time in terms of helping make that plan, I didn't think I needed it, but I did because I didn't do the right amount of reps and I didn't do the right amount of um, conditioning and I didn't do the right amount of mental training and that kind of stuff. You know, I just kind of winged it. And so I had to, I had to feel that, that failure. But the thing is, is that I always felt supported. I always felt supported. You know, I failed many times in my career, but I always knew there was a safe place and that was at home. And that was at the gym with my coach. I never felt judged by failing. He always tried to, he tried to encourage me to see the growth moment in it. You know, what's the learning? What can we learn from this? What happened? How can we make it better next time? There was always, always a reflection period. I wasn't afraid to fail because I knew that I had a supportive landing spot. I'm curious about the legacy as we, and I'm sensitive to your time as well. So I do want to start moving us towards like what the future holds, what you've learned, and maybe even what you want to share with your daughter in the future, what you want to make sure that gets imparted upon the thousands of athletes who come through your gym. And I know you made the transition from a gymnast whose routine is 70 seconds long to actually finishing a marathon, which is, you know, three plus hours. Uh, not an easy transition, I'm sure. But at, at the end of your book, you have a sentence, which I highlighted and, and, and I want to read it for everyone just because I think it's super powerful and maybe this might even be the legacy, but quote unquote, it was a confirmation. This is after you finished your marathon. If it, it was a confirmation that if I narrowed my focus in on a goal, made a plan and surrounded myself with accountability and support, I could accomplish anything even outside the gym. Any thoughts? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, when you, when you read that back to me, I'm like, I get full of emotion because that was a very hard time in my life. I didn't believe in my ability outside of the gym and I was built up so much in the gym and I, I, I had such a great support system, but I didn't, I didn't think I could be good at anything else. I didn't think I, I didn't trust in my ability to like, take on a marathon or a bigger challenge. I, I doubted myself so much. And during the period after the Olympics, I got very depressed. And like, I think that kind of chipped away at my confidence. And so this to me was like a stepping stone. It's like, I'm, I'm going to commit to this and I don't think I can do it, but I'm just going to take day by day, one step at a time. I'm going to build up those kilometers and see if I can do it. And crossing that finish line allowed me to feel the sense of like, I can do anything. And then I decided to open a gymnastics center. And that was really hard, much like training for the Olympics. 
or training for a marathon. But I just went step by step and just surrounded myself with this amazing group of people. I didn't do this by myself. I brought on a team who are incredibly gifted and talented. I hired experts, you know, and I got it done. And same thing with my book. I didn't, I wrote most of the book, but I brought on a co-writer. Her name's Blythe Lawrence. And I needed a writing coach. I knew I wasn't going to be able to cross that finish line if it was up to me. I needed to surround myself with accountability and an expert. And so that to me is the lesson. And I hope that's what I can impart on my daughter and to anyone that reads this book is that if you want to get something done, you can do it no matter what. You have to surround yourself with a supportive team. You have to go step by step, day by day, and you have to apply yourself. Persistence pays off. It always does. I love it. And I think that's probably a great place for us to begin to wrap up. What's the, now that this is out there in the world, the world, your book is out there in the world, books called Make It Happen. Now that you're, we are emerging from this pandemic and hopefully your gymnastics center opens up this summer and we can get, you know, moving back towards everyone engaging in life to our full, full potential. What's your vision for the next few years? Like, what are you thinking about? What are you working on? What, what do you want to have happen in the next little while? Well, short term, I mean, my goal is to get my gymnastics center back up and running and build our community again. That was something we had going so well before the pandemic hit. And then all of a sudden it just all kind of crashed and we have a lot of work to do to rebuild. But I, I trust that we're going to have our community come back and we'll be able to grow our community quite quickly because we have, we have a great team and it's a great space and it's a happy place. And that spreads really quickly, like a wildfire. Uh, short term, I'm also very focused on the Olympics. I'm going to be commentating with CBC Sports for the gymnastics and trampoline. So I'm right now just gathering all my information and, and trying to put my mind towards doing a great job for that. And it's funny, Greg, because I am so driven by goals and by having kind of a finish line in the distance that to me makes my life feel so much more grounded but to be completely honest at this point I don't actually know what that thing is after I get my gymnastics center back open and after I commentate at the Olympics I don't know what that looks like and that's kind of scary for me right now but I'm also trusting that in my life the good things have always bubbled up and something something really good is right around the corner and I'm just I'm trying to be present in this moment and realize that a new goal will come. It will. And I'm going to trust that. Yeah, no. And, and that's the one thing that I may, that I actually think I've pulled out of this pandemic, like personally, is the fact that you know, I had all these plans for 2021 or 2020 even. Actually, I had all these plans and all these goals for 2020. None of them, of course, came true because they all got wiped off the books in March when the world shut mm-hmm. down. But we were fine and we got through it. And it was really hard, but we did great. And uh, coming out of that, we're in actually a better place than we were before. And I fully recognize that that's not true for a lot of people. And I'm grateful that that I've had that opportunity. But giving yourself, trusting yourself, trusting in in time that the right thing will emerge, the right opportunity will emerge and creating space in your life to allow that to bubble up is also huge. And of course, commentating the Olympics, launching a book and getting your business up and running is more than enough for right now. <laughs> it sort of takes me back to, to 2012 when my first book was coming out, commentating the Olympics and starting a new jobs. So it sounds very familiar. That was a tough time. But out of that came all sorts of incredible stuff after that. And I'm sure that's what's going to come up for you as well. I have this vision when I come to places like this, when I don't have that necessary, like distinct goal, I, um, I kind of vision myself when I'm 80, you know, and 
I always think, what, what do I want my impact on the world to be when I'm 80? And I've got three guiding principles. One is that I, I want to make things more fun for the people around me. Like I'm a, I want to have fun. That's what I want in my life. I want to be on party buses and I want to be high-fiving people. And I want the people around me to feel like I bring good, positive energy. The second thing is I want to make a positive impact in my community. Like I really want to be a community member that does things. I don't want to say I'm going to do things. I want to do things and I want to make people's lives better. And with that, the third thing is that I want to help others. You know, I want to help others achieve their potential and, and, and realize it. And so with those three kind of guiding principles, I, I know the next thing will bubble up and, and it will be the right, the right thing, whatever it is. Love it. And I love those three guiding principles that you can look back upon, you know, when you're 80 and uh, when you're 80, I'll be 90. And if we're on a bus partying and high-fiving, I will be super psyched that we have definitely <laughs> lived a good life up to that point, if that's happening. So I'm all in, man. Let's do that. Pub okay. crawl around Calgary Stampede when we are in our 80s and 90s would be a great way to come full circle back to <laughs> what I was doing when right? I was 20. Oh my God, that's hilarious. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time to join us, buddy. I really appreciate it. Great to hear about what you're up to. Congrats on the new book. I'm sure that you know we'll do this again in a little while and hear about all the next incredible things that you've been up to but really appreciate you taking the time my pleasure greg thanks so much for the invitation all right everyone hope that you enjoyed that chat with kyle he's totally awesome glad that you've stuck around this far into the show if, if you want to check out his new book uh you can head over to his website at kyle forward slash book that's k-y-l-e-s-h-e-w-f-e-l-t.com forward slash book and get access to that. You can also check him out on all of his social media at that website as well. Thanks so much for listening in. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us a review on iTunes. That'd be amazing. Uh, subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcast. That also helps us so much. And we are really, really happy and honored and grateful that you are here with us on this journey. Thanks so much. Have a great week. And we'll talk to you again really soon.